Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode and catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Welcome back to At Your Service. Brad Young in with you uh, until the 10 o'clock hour. Glad you're up late with us this evening. Uh, Whatever's on your mind, that's what we want to hear. 314-436-7900. Call or text. We've gotten quite a few texts this evening, and during the break, uh, I always try to respond to those texts. So keep your calls and texts coming. We love to hear from you. Uh, I want to bring in... Producer extraordinaire Matt Pajeski here in uh, to the conversation because when I saw this story, I, I knew I wanted your input on it. And and the story is this: if you've watched any of the uh, the NCAA championships, even for the for the women's side, you know that that L, that LSU won that LSU won the championship for on the women's side uh, uh, for the NCAA tournament. And you also know that historically. When someone wins the tournament, they get invited to the White House. I mean, we've we've all seen those the the video of all of the basketball or even sometimes football stars. They're at the White House. They go out into the Rose Garden. They get a photo op. Sometimes the president will throw a ball or something. And so it's a very good opportunity to have a photo op. But what what piqued my curiosity here and why I wanted to get Matt Pajeski's take on this is because yesterday, First Lady uh, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, said not only should LSU be invited to the White House because they, they won the NCAA Women's Tournament, but that the loser of the championship game, Iowa, should also be invited to the White House. So, Matt Pajeski, what say you? Is it is it something that that we should be inviting uh, uh, the losers to the White House? And is this is this a presidential version of a consolation prize no, yeah. or an attendance prize? I'm I'm just confused, Brad. I don't. I I want to know why. I want to know who who is this benefiting? Who is this good for? It's certainly not good for LSU because they won, so they shouldn't have the same treatment as the team that lost. But it's not. It can't be good for Iowa because they know that they're there not. For the same reason, they know that they're there only like out of pity, I guess, like because they also play like it just doesn't make sense. I wouldn't feel honored if I was the losing team and still got invited. And if I was on the winning team, I would feel slighted that the losing team that I just beat the crap out of is also you know, next. <laughs> just doesn't make sense. Who is it good for? I, You know, I, and I'm going to dive into that philosophy in just a second. But but I wouldn't feel slighted if, if I were if I were LSU 
I would be outraged yeah. because I earned the right to go to the White House to eat some White House dinner and to and to pick up a pack of White House matches that I'm going to take home and show all my friends. And I got to go there because I won the NCAA tournament. Right. And if the losing team gets to show up, I would be like, what are you talking about? I earned the right to be here. You did not. Imagine if in 2011 when the Cardinals <laughs> won the World Series. Yeah. Imagine, you know, they go to the White House, which they did, uh, you know, to visit President Obama. Imagine if the Texas Rangers, who they just smacked around, imagine if they were right next to them, you know, getting their picture taken. Like, it just would not make sense. No, no, it wouldn't make sense at all. But I I guess I tried to analyze this philosophically, and I tried to figure what would possess her to say that. But, you know, remember, she came from academia. And in academia, there's this view that, that there are no winners or losers, that everyone's a winner. I and mean, that's why we have all these participation trophies. And if you show up, you get a trophy. Well, that's not real life. You don't get a participation trophy for showing up. There are winners and there are losers. And sporting events are the pinnacle of that concept of winners and losers. Yep. And uh, Matt, Matt Pauley said this on Sports Open Line. I just want to reiterate it. Why? I mean, is are they getting treated differently because they are... A, a women's college basketball team. You would not not a single uh, men's college basketball team has been asked that. You know, if, if they lost in the finals, why why are we treating the women's team differently than we've treated every single men's team in the past? Is it because <clears throat> we don't want them to feel bad? We're all winners, kind of like what you're saying. Why not just treat them as you know as as college athletes? That's what they are. They're no different than the men. So right. And and you know what? There's no shame if you would have said Iowa. My goodness, you worked so hard to get here. You worked your you worked over and over and over to make it to the finals. By golly, when you get here, congratulations. And if you win next year, you get to come to the White House. But this year, it's LSU's turn. Yeah. I mean, there's no shame in saying that. But we have to say everyone's a winner when in reality, everyone is not a winner. Hey, we're going to take a break. We've got some calls coming in. The phone lines are lighting up. We're going to take all of your calls next here on Camo X. This is at your service, 314 314- 436-7900. Thanks for sticking around. I'm Brad Young. We'll be right back. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. of the show, Don, just texted in and said, Brad, I've been showing up in life for almost 81 years, and I still don't have a trophy. <laughs> well, Don, maybe you should try to lose in the NCAA tournament, and maybe you, too, could be invited to the White House. 314-436-7900. Jim has been holding for a while. Hey, Jim, welcome to Camo X. 
Hi, Brad. Hey, I I was listening the other night, as I always do when I'm out working, and uh, Major Garrett on your show had a gentleman, a senator on, and he was talking about the mass shooting. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really irritates me is I was a custodian for a local school district in our area uh, for five years. And, you know, as you're growing up with these kids, you're, you're getting them, you know, they follow the teachers. Sure. And, and and they really become a personal friend. And those families that come in, you see the loyalty to their, their kids, their sons, their daughters. And for somebody just to come in and shoot them, and, mm. you know, they're going to die. They know that because they're training these people when they come in. They're going to take them out. I don't understand why it continues to happen that these guns are not taken off because they are not – guns i'm a hunter they're not hunting guns they're to take people down they're military guns why do we allow these young kids that these parents want to see grow up to be adults see them get married and stuff and these senators sit there and say well there are more people killed by knives and by other things rather than these mass shootings can you give me an idea on this why these people are i can i can because Despite what some folks say, uh, I've got a couple of callers, uh, Jim, who like to call in and say, like, I'm a right wing Republican, which is certainly not true. I'm I'm not opposed to reasonable gun control. Reasonable gun control can include the elimination of certain types of weapons. It can include red flag laws. It can include stronger background checks. I'm not opposed to those legally because legally restrictions can be imposed upon a Second Amendment right. But here to answer your question, Jim, what happens is this. There's a mode of thinking that says the slippery slope. In other words, if we allow these types of restrictions, and you can define these types of restrictions however you like, because it basically means any restrictions. But if we allow these types of restrictions today, then tomorrow there's going to be even more restrictions. And so that's the argument that's against any any type of restrictions on gun control. So I'm not opposed to those. But my point is often that 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 is an emotional response as opposed to a logical response. For example, the Nashville shooter, the guns that she had, at least according to reports that I saw, it never, it was not an AR-15, but it was it was a rifle that had attachments to the rifle that made it look like an AR-15. So that doesn't inherently make the gun any more dangerous if you have it as a folding stock or if you have a pistol grip on the front of the gun. Those are just accoutrements to the gun that don't make it inherently any more dangerous or lethal. So to me, the middle ground position is it's okay to discuss and implement tighter gun restrictions. But this this mode of thinking that says if we just have uh, if we eliminate all of these AR-style guns, it's going to stop the mass shootings. That also is is fallacious. It's simply not going to happen. I got you. I mean, Does that help? I, they always talk about psychology, you know, that it's not the gun, it's the person behind it. Well, that person knows when they go in to do a mass shooting like that, they're going to be taken out. So they obviously don't care what they're right. doing because they know, bottom line, it's either go, they're going to kill themselves or they're going to get shot and, and get killed. Right. But also on the flip side, even though I'm I'm not opposed to additional gun restrictions on the flip side, if there is a police officer in the school building, now it couldn't have happened in the Nashville shooting because it was a private school. But if you had police officers in schools 
who are uh, who are there with uh, with their own weapons, they could take down a shooter in in seconds or within minutes. In, instead of waiting for a SWAT team to arrive, and yet so many on the left are opposed to that. So that's why I think we really, truly need to find some middle ground solutions, which can include additional gun control, additional restrictions on uh, background uh, background checks, but it can also involve having people on the premises with a weapon who is trained and ready to take down those shooters when they arrive on the school. Doesn't that seem like a reasonable approach to these problems? You know what? The government needs to pay for that and have that done in each school district that is out there because they know they're vulnerable. They know it's easy access, and these kids don't deserve to die. They deserve to live like the rest of us. You're exactly right. Hey, Jim, thanks for calling in this evening. Appreciate it. No Uh, problem. Jim M. has been calling. Not the same Jim, but Jim M., you've been holding a very long time. Hey, welcome to KMOX. Yeah, I'm just calling about uh, basketball or teams. uh, I think that was just uh, trying to be nice to Women's uh, Month or this year and everything. Okay, so but, it was uh, it was an effort just to be nice to some ladies. I think so. Okay, all right. But, but do you agree with the idea that losers should be invited to celebrate at the White House just like the winners? No. No. Okay. Well, uh, Jim, you sound like a right thinking kind of guy. Get rid of the guns and the lobbyists. <laughs> uh, wise words indeed. Hey, Jim, thanks for calling in this evening. All righty. Uh, hey, John, what do you think about this idea of inviting the loser team to the White House? What are your thoughts? Uh, I respectfully disagree with the last caller. Uh, I'd just like to say, look, we're all in this together. What all these kids have accomplished is great. It's time for America to unite. We're all on the same team for the things that really count. And I applaud both sides. And it's not just about shooting a basket that wins here and there. It's about doing it's all the things they've accomplished to be at this point. We're all winners. None of us are losers. And that's something to celebrate. Well, John, I, I, I'm, I, as respectfully as I can be here, that's just not right. There is a winner and a loser. In that tournament, one team got the championship trophy, and that was LSU. Iowa did not win. So there are, in fact, winners and losers. And why should the loser of a game receive the same benefit of being invited to the White House as the winner does? Because if someone died and appointed you God, then you can make decisions like that. But we're each entitled to our own opinions, and that's mine. Well, you're you're certainly entitled to that opinion, but the the fact that the NCAA has determined that there is in fact a winner. Giving you, you mine. Very good, sir. John, thank you for sharing your comments this evening. Appreciate it. What do you think? 314-436-7900. We've got some other things here I want to get to and in this hour in fact, uh, after the break, I, I'm probably going to talk some about going through uh, legally the the Trump uh, the Trump indictment. But one thing I do have to mention, if if you voted in the election yesterday here locally or you saw the results, there was a marijuana tax. And, uh, and I just, I love how economics, and I've talked about this before here on Answer Service, but economics applies to every area of our lives. It truly does. And 
as I was looking at the results of the marijuana tax vote, economics came to mind. What do I mean? Well, when you look at this, uh, both the voters in St. Louis County, it was Prop 3, I believe, in St. Charles County, Prop M in St. Louis County, both counties voted to increase or to add a sales tax to marijuana sales. Now, why is that? Well, it's pretty obvious. The county governments of both St. Charles County and St. Louis County want to increase revenue. And increasing revenue on pot smokers is kind of an easy call. It's like the easiest taxes to raise if you're a politician are taxes on hotel rooms. Why? Because you're taxing people who don't live here. You're taxing people who don't vote for you. When somebody comes in from, let's say, Louisiana, uh, they just finished uh, uh, with the NCAA tournament and they want to come see St. Louis. Those folks aren't from here. They don't vote. And so if you're going to increase their hotel taxes, they don't have a pony in that race. So that's an easy tax to raise. The same is also true with pot smokers, apparently, that it's safe to raise a tax on pot smokers because St. Louis County and St. Louis, St. Charles County have done that, increasing it uh, to a 6%, actually adding a 3% sales tax on top of a 6% state sales tax, coming up with a total of a 9% sales tax. Now, the argument that I heard was, well, why if, if people want to buy marijuana, then let them buy marijuana, but we should be funneling more money into our state coffers or county coffers for that. Okay, that's a valid argument. But what most folks don't understand is by is that by voting for this sales tax, what you're really voting for is increased sales of illegal marijuana. Why do I say that? Because there is a direct economic correlation between the price of legal marijuana and the sales of illegal marijuana. So as the price of legal weed goes up through taxation, the sales of that weed go down because it costs more money. But the consumption of marijuana doesn't change. So as the consumption of marijuana, of legal marijuana, goes down because of the increased prices, people buy more illegal weed, who they and they don't pay any taxes on that. So I think it's if you look at this from a chess player's perspective, the folks who voted for an increased sales tax, really what you're voting for is less revenue. Because as the price goes up, people are going to turn to illegal marijuana. And when they do, they're not paying any taxes on that. They're just paying the dude on the corner that's selling weed out of Ziploc bags. Okay, and he's not paying any taxes on that. So if you voted for it, I'm not knocking you. I understand the rationale for uh, voting to increase the taxes on weed. Just know at the end of the day, it's not going to accomplish what you think it's going to accomplish. And speaking of that, speaking of not accomplishing what you think it's going to accomplish, Alvin Bragg, prosecutor in New York, uh, his isn't going to accomplish that either. And I'll break down the legality of what we know about the Trump indictments and what comes next in this New York saga from a legal perspective. Brad Young at your service on X. Hey, you're going to want to stick around for this next segment. Don't go away. <laughs> Welcome back to At Your Service. Brad Young in with you until 10 o'clock tonight. 
Thanks for sticking around with us. Uh, yesterday, I had an opportunity to read through all 16 pages of the 34-count indictment of uh, President Trump. And I looked through it not from a political angle, not looking at it to say that uh, to, to pick one side or the other, but I looked at it from a legal perspective, and I tried to analyze it from the viewpoint of is this valid or invalid? And let me give you some of the some of my analysis on this. And a lot of this, unfortunately, we're not hearing from the mainstream media, and that's too bad because we need a more critical view of what's happening, not just the political view, not just the uh, the red state versus the blue state analysis, but but what legally is in this. And the first thing I need to explain, I'm not going to do a deep dive into this, but I do want to mention there's this concept of of what's called charge stacking. What is that? The charge stacking is a it's a tactic that prosecuting attorneys have used forever, as far as I know, uh, certainly since I went to law school. And it's it's a tactic that, that says this. The way our legal system is, is it's very complex. So if you commit one crime that one crime can actually violate several different areas of the law. So what charge stacking does is it says, if you commit this one act, I'm going to find every instance under the penal code to demonstrate that this violates multiple different provisions so I can add to the number of charges. And by adding to the number of charges... The idea is, is that when this eventually goes to a trial, the jury will look at it and say, wow, this person's charged with 10 different crimes or 20 different crimes. He must be guilty of something. Even if all of them aren't valid, you try to inflate the number of charges against a defendant to see if maybe some of them stick in terms of the jury convicting the defendant. That's the tactic. So as I look through all 34 of the indictment charges, now criminal charges, uh, against President Trump. There's a lot of stacking in this, in these charges. And the stacking goes like this. If you assert that the money that was paid to Stormy Daniels was done in violation of the Federal Election Commission rules, if you admit that, just for discussion purposes, then that should be one count. But what happens is, is that that hundred and thirty thousand dollars that that uh, Michael Cohen paid and his legal fees related to that one hundred and thirty thousand dollar charge were not paid all at once. In other words, when like, for example, my legal bills, I, I bill hourly, I bill my clients at my law firm. I don't send them one bill. I send them a bill every month. So when I do work today or tomorrow, I send them a bill. When I do work in uh, May, I'll send them another bill. When I do work in June, I'll bill them again. So what Alvin Bragg has done, and I looked through all 34 counts, what he looked at is he said every time Michael Cohen's legal bills were paid, that was a legal violation. That was illegal act. And that violated uh, that violated whatever provision of New York law. And then when that charge was registered on the books for the Trump organization, then that triggered yet another charge. So when you look at that, there there were multiple legal bills paid to Michael Cohen, which in of itself generated a dozens of these charges. Even though it all revolved around a single act, 
of paying Stormy Daniels or also listed in there paying Karen McDougal, uh, a playboy, another playboy bunny who got paid hush money. Not just those one acts, but every act of paying the legal bills associated with that act generated a different charge. That's the one part. So when you look at that, that is extremely questionable. In fact, if you take it out of the context of the president and look at any other defendant, defense attorneys will always complain about prosecutors doing this type of act of charge stacking. But it's done every day, even though it's not considered to be, I'm not going to say it's unethical, but it certainly is questionable. And that's what's being done here. But secondly, and more importantly, if you look at each of those charges, those are all misdemeanors under New York law, every one of them. The business record falsification laws in the state of New York are misdemeanors. What does it mean to have a misdemeanor? Misdemeanor means that it's punishable. Maximum punishment is less than one year in prison. People do not go to jail for misdemeanors. I'm not going to say that no one has ever in the history of our country gone to jail for a misdemeanor, because obviously that's not the case. But the vast, vast majority of misdemeanors are not, or people are not punished, rather, with jail time when it comes to a misdemeanor. So if you want to send someone to jail, the only way to do it is with a felony charge. So when you look at what Alvin Bragg has put forward in here in the list of charges, those are all misdemeanor charges. But they're elevated, and there's really nothing in this, and this is what's going to be a focal point of a motion to dismiss. There's nothing in here about specifically what federal law was violated. It's not outlined in there at all. So in order to be elevated to a felony, these business falsification charges had to have been done in furtherance or to cover up another crime that happens to be a felony. That's the only way it rises to the level of a felony charge. It's called bootstrapping. And when you look at that, there's nothing in the charges that specifically state how how President Trump allegedly violated federal law. That's the biggest flaw that I see. The second flaw that I see is this. When you look at all of those misdemeanor charges, every single one of them is a misdemeanor charge that's being elevated to felony status because of the allegation that it violates federal law. The misdemeanor statutes in the state of New York are two years. What does that mean? Statute limitations. That means if you want to prosecute the crime, you have to do so within a specified period of time. Otherwise, the government is prohibited from prosecuting you for that alleged criminal activity. For every single one, without exception, in the 34 so-called felonies, every single one of them, without exception, the statute of limitations has expired. So how can they prosecute? Well, again, it's this bootstrapping idea that says if we link it all to the prosecution of a federal crime or the commission, rather, of a federal crime, we can elevate it to a felony status. That is going to be the focus of a legal motion to dismiss. Thirdly, since there's an enormous question It's not settled law, but can a state court prosecute federal election charge violations? We don't know. We don't know the answer to that question. 
And that's another enormous question, because if the state of New York, if the city of Manhattan cannot prosecute a federal election law violation, then they can't prosecute any of these felonies or so-called felonies as felonies. It would all have to be prosecuted as misdemeanors. And again, as a misdemeanor, the statute of limitations has already expired. Let's look at under federal law. This is what the FEC, the FEC is the Federal Elections Commission. The Federal Elections Commission chairman, Bradley Smith, he was the one in charge of the Federal Elections Commission in 2018. Here's what he said, and I'm quoting. The best interpretation of the law is that it simply is not a campaign expense to pay blackmail for things that happened years before one's candidacy. And thus, nothing Cohen, or in this case, Trump as well, nothing they did is a campaign finance crime, unquote. That's from the chairman of the Federal Elections Commission. Because remember, the money or the activity that was done between Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump, whatever that was, frankly, I don't want to know what activity was done there. Listen, I'll never be able to sleep again if I, can, if I think about that very far. But whatever it is that was done, even if nothing was done, whatever was done was done a decade before this happened. So the head of the Federal Elections Commission said it's not a campaign finance crime if the activity took place a decade before. So that's why federal officials, at least the FEC, didn't do anything about it. The Department of Justice in 2018 chose not to prosecute this because they did not see it as a federal crime. So now we have a prosecutor who is making it a crime, but under state law, and there are so many legal issues with this, I just can't see this case ever going to trial. There's another issue here, too, and we're going to take a break here. But when I come, we come back from this break, I'm going to show you the similarities between what Alvin Bragg is doing in New York and what Kim Gardner has been doing right here in the city of St. Louis, literally playing from the exact same playbook. And if the results are the same, it could be devastating for Bragg as he attempts to prosecute President Trump. More on that after this break. At your service, Brad Young, don't go away. Welcome back to At Your Service. I was talking about the indictment and the prosecution of Donald J. Trump. And I want to I want to draw some comparisons here. And before I I dive into some of these comparisons, let's start with Kim Gardner. Do you remember that when Kim Gardner, when she was prosecuting Eric Greitens, the activity against Eric Greitens, if you recall this at the time, because I was very much invested in it because I had to talk about it on X all the time. When you looked at that situation, there was never any evidence of a specific criminal activity. None. There was no photograph. There was no allegation that there was a photograph. There was no evidence of a photograph of the mistress. And yet, and yet, Kim Gardner pursued Eric Greitens at the exclusion of all else. Because at the time, this was in 2018, obviously, even then, Kim Gardner's office was not prosecuting crimes. But they devoted all of their efforts 
to going after a political opponent being this in this instance being Eric Greitens. It was a dubious legal theory prosecuting a person when there was no evidence of any kind of illegal activity. But we're going to go after him because it's it's uh, uh, it, it serves the political purpose of the prosecuting attorney's office. In other words, Kim Gardner weaponized the, the, the circuit attorney's office in the city of St. Louis to go after a political candidate, even though there was no hard evidence of any criminal activity. Let's look at Alvin Bragg, the exact same situation. Crime in New York is skyrocketing. Every type of crime is up in, this, in New York City. And yet the prosecuting attorney's office in New York City, at the exclusion of prosecuting real crime, is going after a political candidate and weaponizing the office for the purpose of stopping a candidate's political career. Now, to me, that's outrageous. And what that reminds me of is going back into the 1970s. I was okay. I was like five years old then. All right. But but in, in studying history. One of the things that Richard Nixon did, which was outrageous, was that he weaponized the IRS. He developed something called a, a, a an enemies list, and he instructed the executive branch to use the IRS to go after his political enemies. That was outrageous then. But what we're seeing now is much the same. We also saw uh, during the Obama administration with Lois Lerner, the weaponization of the IRS to go after political opponents by use of the tax agency, the IRS. That's outrageous to weaponize the prosecution of criminal activity for the sole purpose of political gain. We saw that with Kim Gardner. We're seeing that now with Alvin Bragg. But yet there's another comparison. When Kim Gardner was running for re-election, and to me this is crystal clear, when Kim Gardner was running uh, for re-election, this was right after the incident with the McCloskeys, where the McCloskeys were stupidly but legally defending their own property against a mob that they thought was going to destroy their property. And a mob that had, in fact, destroyed personal property up to that point. So when Kim Gardner was running for reelection, she actually used in her campaign material, if you vote for me, I will prosecute the McCloskeys. She campaigned on that. So when it came to actually prosecuting the McCloskeys, one of the legal tactics that the McCloskeys used is that they asserted that Kim Gardner had a conflict of interest because her interest was not simply as a prosecuting attorney to prosecute criminal activity, but was to further her own political career by selectively prosecuting certain individuals. And that argument won. And in the instance of Kim Gardner, she was removed as the prosecuting attorney over the the McCloskeys, and it was given to a different special prosecutor because she had a conflict of interest. Now let's look at Alvin Bragg. Alvin Bragg specifically ran for office using the campaign strategy of saying, vote for me and I will prosecute Donald J. Trump, exactly like the McCloskeys and Kim Gardner. And so when when Alvin Bragg actually got the indictment and is now prosecuting Donald Trump, it's the same situation. He has a conflict of interest because his interest is not merely as a prosecutor in, in, in fighting crime and prosecuting those who break the law, 
but it's also to further his political career and to keep campaign promises, not just to fight crime in general, but to prosecute one specific individual. And in fact, with with Alvin Bragg, it even goes beyond that because he campaigned, I will find a way to prosecute Donald Trump. That's even worse than what Tim Gardner did. She didn't say, I will find a way to prosecute the McCloskeys. She just said she would prosecute them because the alleged criminal activity that the McCloskeys committed was open and obvious. But Alvin Bragg said, I will find a way to prosecute Donald Trump. And he did. And he's doing it now. So if Kim Gardner was removed as the prosecuting attorney over the McCloskeys for something that was much less egregious than what Alvin Bragg has done with regard to Donald Trump, shouldn't he too, therefore, be removed as the prosecuting attorney because he has a conflict of interest? Well, the answer to that is yes. I think any reasonable individual can say that Alvin Bragg has a conflict of interest and he should be removed from the case. But there's one important difference. The difference, and in fact, Alan Dershowitz predicted today that Trump will be convicted. And he said this for the same reason that I'm questioning whether or not Alvin Bragg will actually be removed from this case. Because what judge, think about this for a moment. If you're a judge in the city of New York, you go to important parties, you go hang out at wine and cheese functions, at art galleries with millionaires who are all vying to be more liberal than the next wine-drinking socialite. What judge is going to be kicked out or want to be kicked out of all of those, those swanky parties by being the judge who kicked Alvin Bragg off the case or the judge that granted Donald Trump's motion to dismiss? What judge wants to be in that position? Because they all want to keep going to the parties. They all want the free wine and cheese. They all want to go to the art gallery openings. They want to do those things. And they won't get to do those things if they kick off Alvin Bragg off the case or they dismiss the charges against Donald Trump. So even though legally, morally, and ethically, Bragg should not be the prosecutor, the judge should probably be removed, and the charges should probably be dismissed. Despite all of those reasons, it may not even happen because of the darn judges who want to go to parties and drink expensive wine paid for by somebody else. Welcome to the United States of America. Brad Young, at your service. I'll see you next Wednesday. Listen to every MLB game live. In the deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.